I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. So welcome back, everybody, to Disasters Deconstructed. We're so happy that you've joined us again today. And so today we have something different again for you guys. We're going to speak to a researcher who um, is doing a lot of work around storytelling, but specifically looking at representation and hidden narratives and voices. And I think it'll be a really great episode that hopefully we'll all learn a lot. So today with us, we've got Gemma So. Gemma is a development geographer based at the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute in the University of Manchester. She's a social scientist working at the intersection of development studies, disaster studies, and media sociology. And most importantly, Gemma is a master extraordinaire of research communication. Welcome, Gemma. Thank you. That was, uh, I wasn't expecting to be called an an extraordinaire, but I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) yeah thanks for being with us Gemma we are such fans of your work um, on this podcast and we're so excited that you're able to join us today um, because in this second season we're talking about storytelling and about how we frame different issues and which stories are told and not a lot of people are talking about media representation of um, vulnerability and kind of systemic oppression But this is kind of what shapes our perception of disasters, isn't it? And um, so I wanted to start off by asking you, how does the media represent um, so-called vulnerability or systemic oppression? What are the stories that they tell us? And are these the stories that they should be telling us? For me, I really think the, the, the media has a lot of agency in the way that people perceive and respond to people are affected by disasters or how they understand the cause of disasters so I think for me there needs to be a lot more emphasis on understanding how how the media what what narratives are embedded in these stories and that people are being exposed in the wider public and that could be through news it could be through fundraising campaigns it could be through video games poetry theatre graphic novels but the the principal way that people or the wider public often learn about disasters or vulnerability is through uh, mainstream news outlets, fundraising campaigns. And these can have real-world impacts. Um, There's research done by Martin Scott, for example. He says that the media representations, they can shape the way people respond to charity, fundraising campaigns, the support they give to NGOs, activism, and they even can form global connections of solidarity. So yeah. the way that these fundraising campaigns in particular, or news, news reports, you, may, you can see them often on BBC, Guardian, how they tell stories about disasters. It's often very, very reductive, very apolitical, very um, decontextualized. So the whole, you know, the number one rule that we have in disaster studies is disasters aren't natural, but there's a tendency in the media to very much naturalize disasters by erasing the politics around why some people are more vulnerable than others. Um, The the economic um, or structural violence that 
underpins why some people are more exposed to hazards or more vulnerable to hazards because there's an emphasis on saying it was because the hurricane was strong or the, the water the rain was very heavy um, rather than really peeling back the lane saying why is this such a um, uh, why is it some people are more disproportionately exposed to hazards than the other and then another thing is that the media often really dehumanizes people in terms of just focusing on um, the raw suffering of people which I'm not saying is not important it, that is a, a story to be told but there's a tendency to represent people affected by disasters particularly in the global south as having no agency um, as having no voice um, there's a tendency to not really talk identify people in terms of their names or their history or personalities or experiences rather the camera just focuses on them from afar and you see a news reporter um, reporting on them rather than perhaps speaking to those who've been affected. So there's a tendency to really homogenise people and um, blanket have this blanket representation of everybody having the same experience. And to me, I mean, it's a personal annoyance, but you'll probably know some Hurricane Irma, if you remember from 2017, and you see Hurricane... Dorian who hit the Bahama, which hit the Bahamas too. Mm. Um, the media is so obsessed with focusing on the story of the tourists, particularly tourist destinations. Yeah. So it's oh the the tourists have they can't get home. They're they're stuck. They're stranded. Uh, the flights have been delayed. Rather than shifting the gaze towards people who have lost their lives, livelihoods, um, the the houses have you know been destroyed. There's a real um, a real, it's, 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 I mean, it's obscenely um, di- distorted in whose stories get told in those sorts of situations. And, you know, a lot of people have been saying as well about the way that the bushfires in Australia have been reported, that the amount of publicity that the bushfires in Australia have received in comparison to the floods in um, East Africa last year received few um, news reports. And it shows this, like, racialized bias over who is worthy of more airtime basically which i think is really problematic yeah. and then just a third point is that the way that the stories are told it tends to be the outsiders who are telling the stories who have the the, the microphone so to speak or the stage rather than the stories being told from the people who are the most who are affected who are on the, you know, the front lines so to speak so Really, questions still need to be answered in terms of who who is the one telling the story, who is the one having the being given the agency and control over how stories are told and who they're told to and what mediums are used to tell them, whether video games or news reports. just so glad that you're hitting all these points that we talk about on, on Disasters Deconstructed. Absolutely. It's so great. And um, I was, it just made me think of um, like the power behind this and like who's controlling the narrative. Um, and I, I brings to mind an example from the bushfires that you mentioned where um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been very careful 
in blaming nature, right? Yeah. And you've probably you've probably seen this. Yeah. You know, he said they're natural disasters. We can't control natural disasters. Yeah. And he he's just kind of kept that narrative going as much as he can, um, because that's a that's a narrative that that protects the status quo. It protects the those who are yeah. denying climate change and protects those who are not doing anything about mitigation, right? Yeah. It's it's it's, it's such a um it's a it's an argument that's peddled all the time but it's it's so political because what you do is you open up, up a space or you're, you're a lot reproducing a narrative that the state has no control over it the state um, is able to withdraw and um, so it's a, it's a highly ne- neoliberal argument um yeah. and it's one that basically shift responsibility downwards either to those who are most affected into saying we couldn't help you you were in the wrong place um you know the only solution is for you to move out of the area and um, so, so again putting the burden of responsibility on those most affected yeah and you know i think you've represented this actually so well in in the novella after maria and thank you so much for sending me the hard copy i absolutely love it i've oh, thank of, you. You know, read and scribbled on it, it it's wonderful and so in this novella, you're writing about the everyday lived experiences of the people who were affected by the Hurricane Marina, uh, Maria. Sorry, And, you know, there, there is this little snippet where uh, two characters are talking about the aid and a woman says that the kids are getting sick of ready meals. Michael really asked um, or actually asked for mangoes yesterday. And a man in the picture responds, yeah, yeah, it took him a hurricane to get him to like fruit. Yeah, And it really made me laugh, you know, that's such a kind of small phrase, you know, that like kids wouldn't eat fruit, but we would never get, mm. we would never hear that on the news, right? We would never hear mm. about this everyday experience. It's not something that the stories are telling us. Um, and actually, for those of you listeners who haven't seen the novella, we'll put the link on the show notes so you can all enjoy it. Um, it's absolutely wonderful. It is a graphic novel about the <laughs> low-income uh, Puerto Rican families. So... Gemma, how did you come up with the idea of creating a novella, which is kind of a graphic novel, a novella? I, I read a lot of graphic novels, actually, um, so I, and I find them amazing for communicating really complex ideas in really engaging ways. So there's so many graphic novels out there that you can read, you can learn about the Holocaust, the civil rights movement, mm. um, Marxism. So I was already aware that graphic novels the, the, the technology of form of them allows you to learn complex ideas um, and then graphic illustration if we think of that as a way of storytelling it allows you to really focus on um, particular characters particular individuals you get to develop these 3d characters with names personalities experiences um, particularly because in graphic illustration comics or novel graphic novels you tend to have a protagonist and that's what mm-hmm. you'll see in the After Maria comic is that there's a character in Natalia and her family who surround her but you get to know a lot about her personality and that for me was number one in this was instead of having these um, really dehumanising representations of people affected by disasters well you don't even know their name, you don't even know their personalities, their humour to try and bring through those very... Uh, insignificant but um moments where you get to see the personalities where they joke with one another where they maybe get angry um Mm. where maybe they share like a an intimate moment with each other so that was 
one of the main reasons for the novella. Um, and it also, with the graphic illustration, the person who reads it um, isn't just being force-fed information. So it's not, you're not learning to this very didactic way of, here is the idea, you know, take it at face value like you would in a textbook. With a with graphic illustration, you read, and you look at the images, and you bring what background knowledge you already have about gender or vulnerability or resilience or urban um, urban context, and you're able to use that knowledge to unpack the ideas. So it's really, you, you have, it happens to be an active way of learning. So in that, not to get all pedagogical on you, but the active way of learning um, is more effective. <laughs> so it's, it, ha, it can have a, a more deeper learning. I think just building on what I said before about a more nuanced understanding of the politics around uh, disasters. It's not something that I went really in depth in, in the novella, but I brought in ideas of the institutional capacity of local governments, um, the 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 inadequacy of aid response, um, the disproportionate effects of the of the hurricane on different people depending on identity. So just trying to add a bit more uh, nuance and context than simplified ideas that you see in news reports. I think you did an absolutely brilliant job, you know, when particularly when there is a bit where you're talking about uh, FEMA and how they're kind of doing the assessment, you know, post uh, post hurricane assessment. And there is this just one line with kind of people confused and they say they don't even understand our language. And it's amazing how that one line kind of captures, you know, the whole of situation. Right. And we know what the implication of that is going to be. Yeah. Things like that, like FEMA. So I don't want to go um all out on FEMA, but these those the risk assessments were um, highly inadequate. Yeah, because of the language, because they were just focused on the physical impact rather than people actually prioritizing often needing a sofa or a TV because that allowed them to re- regain the sense of home and comfort and belonging and re- uh, a sense of identity and um, sense of ease, but. That's again not something that you really learn about in um, mainstream media, but also even in academia. If you look at the resilience literature, the re- resilience literature often instrumentalizes disaster recovery um, in terms of reduction of impacts from hazards. Whereas, what I'm kind of finding from my own research is that people really prioritise these other intangibles like comfort and homeliness and um, relaxation time, which are not seen, which may be seen as irrational. So often disaster recovery or resilience isn't instrumentalised that way. And they're seen in these soft resources or uh, these maybe superfluous needs and concerns are ignored. So that's kind of something I wanted to bring through in the novella. Yeah, and you know, I I think it really really worked. I I didn't really know much about graphic novels at all until just a few years ago. Somehow, you know, they, I mean, I read a lot, but I've never really engaged with graphic novels. And I think the first one I read was Mouse by. Art oh yeah, Superman. that's a very famous one. Yeah. 
it's wonderful, right? How you can just unpack kind of whole idea of Holocaust through, you know, 200 pages of illustration of very few words. And it's probably the most powerful narrative um, mm. of Holocaust I've ever seen. So yeah, since then, I really started engaging with graphic novels. But, you know, whilst when we look at them, they all kind of look quite nice and um, simple to engage with. I can imagine that the production must be quite difficult. So how did you engage with an artist? How did you actually produce this novella? Oh, you know what? It was a, it was, it was harder than it was so much harder than writing a journal article. If I'm completely honest, I was like, oh, this is going to be a doddle. It's just some pictures. Well, I didn't think it would be that easy, but it, it was, um, it was a steep learning curve to be completely honest. So, I found an, a fantastic illustrator called John C. Douglas. Please go to his website. He's brilliant, and. He'd never he'd never drawn anything like this, and I'd never written a script for this. So, for me, I had my agenda of I'm going to write a script, and I need to make sure that the findings and the theories and the ideas from my data comes through. Whereas he has an agenda where he wants to make it, you know, beautiful, engaging, aesthetically pleasing. So for the first four or five pages, it was a back and forth. Um, and some things that John thought weren't necessary to be drawn and they could be left out. I was like, no, that's really important. We need to keep that in. So, for example, um, there was a there was a panel, a box, where he drew the the boy and the girl, the brother and sister, like um, the children in the household. He drew them in separate bedrooms. And I was like, no, 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 mm-hmm. you can't draw them in separate bedrooms. They need to be in the same bedroom because this idea of, you know, um, income poverty you can't have them um, separate bedrooms you know people share the same bedrooms it's um, it would show higher high levels of income if people have their own private mm. bedrooms and he thought that was such a smart minor point but I was like I was trying to make sure that it was reflecting the context that I was in um, but that that came with time like just back and forth the um, the process of writing the script if anybody's thinking about doing this there's an amazing book called how to write comics for dummies, something like that. <laughs> I mean, it just says what it, do, it just says what it does on the tin, basically. And um, you, it, it's it helps you have like um, a visual visual imagination, and you have to kind of yeah, just try and think of the idea or the the theory or the concept you're trying to get people to learn about. And then just come up with a scenario, which sounds really not very useful. But for me, I tried to make sure that every page had a concept or an idea that people could, could learn from. So page 18 mm-hmm. is all about lapse, loss of privacy. Um, I think it helped me to structure and thinking, what do I want the reader to learn from this about the data? And use that as your building blocks to create each page. That was really um, a roundabout way of explaining it. But it's a kind of thing where you just have to do it and work with the illustrator back and forth to see, see what works for both of you. So a big part of this Gemma is obviously about communicating with different audiences in different ways and I know like Ksenia and me you're obviously very passionate about communicating to non-academic audiences 
in ways they can um, understand and are compelled by. And we um, know you've published pieces in the conversation focusing on disaster capitalism and stories of everyday people and those impacted most by disasters. And um, so this is not really something that's traditionally rewarded in academia. So what drives you to really engage with the public like this? Well, it's definitely not the ref because the, uh, <laughs> those, the, 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 those sorts of articles really don't get acknowledged. And I think we just have a really perverse way of measuring um, impact and um, the the importance of research by looking at journal articles. And yeah. I mean, I'm sure all of us could go on all day about that, but I see myself, I see academics as public servants and yeah. we um, get paid to gather knowledge and um, learn new things and then feed that back into the public. And because we have these journals, we have extremely ex expensive paywalls People don't have access yeah. to that knowledge, so it's a really unethical way of knowledge production. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that's one point. But also, I think it's you know really important to engage the public because, like I said before, the way that the wider public is learning about disasters is through mainstream media, which have these very apolitical, ahistorical, reductive narratives. So having the opportunity to perhaps engage with the wider public and undermine and unpack those ideas is really important. So I've recently worked with a photographer and we're putting together, we've just done a photo exhibition, which will be at the People's History Museum. And that's that's for the wider public to enjoy and be exposed to images of people in disaster affected areas, which don't just focus on the roof fell down or look at all these people in, in raw agony or you know, yeah. hundreds of people in, the, in boats coming through the Mediterranean when we have images of refugees. Actually, it's really important for the, the wider public to see the individual faces and, and stories of, of people mm. who've been affected and to, to humanise them. Um, and a big part of that is to um, speak back to or challenge the what I think are quite colonial ideas or colonial narratives that are reproduced and reified in the media about um, helpless, um, agency-less people um, in the global South context. So having any small part that I can in doing that through a, you know, a small uh, public exhibition or uh, working with artists or through publishing and, you know, public engagement pieces is, is is really important but another thing is that it's just really enjoyable to write in that way I, I hmm. don't think I'm best suited to academic journal articles I find them <laughs> painful to write um, just that style of writing is something that doesn't come naturally to me so having to be able to write it in a different way and engage with artists is, is something that's enjoyable I get, I get to release a creative side that's like lie dormant a lot of the time yeah, Tisanya and I were talking about this yesterday um, in that, like about doing the podcast and that it's just such a enjoyable way to learn and refine kind of different arguments and talk with different people with very different perspectives and just open 
my eyes for sure to the whole world of possibilities and how to how to communicate you know exactly and if you if you think about all the different ways that you can communicate an idea you have a podcast you have a you have a video game you have a a, a poem a, a play um, a novel a film they all tell stories in different ways because of the way mm. that the, the the technological form so if you were to try and communicate a research finding in a tweet which is 140 characters mm. it's going to reach a certain group of people it's going to be quite a simplistic way of telling a story whereas if you have um, a video game you can have a scenario where a person that can explore multiple stages of the game they have to use their agency to um, unpack ideas to solve puzzles um, so it's less didactic whereas if you have um, a a film that has a more linear narrative where it's there's one storyline driving all, all the way through so it depending on which medium you use you'll be able to communicate your story in different ways and reach different people So you're working with artists quite a lot, right, from what I understand. But unfortunately, I think many of our colleagues see working as artists as a kind of afterthought, you know, so, oh, we've done the research and now can you draw a pretty poster for me, right? That <laughs> kind of does that. Um, yeah. I've, I've, I've been called a Xenian her eclectic bunch, you know, because I try to work with artists quite a lot. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it, it was not a compliment, let's put it that way. But I I do, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's so important to engage with artists because they help us to communicate our thoughts in a completely different way. So tell us a little bit more about your experience of working with different arts and different mediums of arts. So I worked with a theatre production when they were creating a play in Manchester about refugees. Basically, mm. they got um, a few researchers working on refugee issues to come in, talk about their research, um, to inform the the play, the, the script, the storyboard, um, and that was that that was a really interesting experience because, again, this idea that theatre you're able you tell stories in a completely different way. So that was very much um, how can you make how can you tell a narrative about refugees that um, can involve the audience um, you can well theatre practitioners are saying that in a theatre space you can um, you can make it quite interactive so people can learn about refugee issues from a different perspective than reading about it um, and also again with theatre you're able to create more 3D characters or create personalities um, around refugee characters that were in the play mm -hmm. so that again is fundamentally different than to uh, a news report i worked a little bit with a photographer we went and we worked in barbuda after hurricane irma and that was with tamsin foster foster she's she's a brilliant manchester photographer and the idea was to go to barbuda and we wanted to just get people's ideas on 
how what their vision of recovery was for the island because there's a lot of controversy over Barbuda in terms of disaster capitalism taking place to be re, re recovered in terms of mass tourism, luxury resorts. So we wanted to get the perspective of people in terms of what they th- how they think it should be recovered. And Tamsin really was at the forefront of that in terms of speaking to people and saying, how do you want to be represented? Uh, where do you want this photo to be taken? What story do you want to tell? So people were, people were um, you know, decided where to take it inside the house, inside the house, on the street, on top of the roofs that they were on top of the houses where they were being rebuilt, outside the bars that they owned. Um, mm-hmm. So it really was making sure that people were able to dictate how the photos were taken. And then I worked with this amazing article, Safa Khan, to produce portraits of some of the civil servants I interviewed in Antigua about their experience of working with international development consultants. And that the idea around that really was to... Give give again an identity to the people behind the scenes, the bureaucrats behind the scenes, because a lot a lot of times we just think that policies get made rather than knowing who are the individuals who are uh, working on the nuts and bolts of policies. And again, just to to show who these people are, but in all honesty, that was just something I wanted to create to give back to the participants to say thank you so much for taking part in this. Um, would you would you like me to um, create a portrait or put, uh, commission somebody to produce a portrait? That's a big part of it as well to be able to give something back tangible to people I speak to, mm. because a journal article is going to be mostly absolutely useless. So being able to give somebody the comic, give somebody the photo um, or the portrait, I think it's just in some small way. I'm not saying it's the best way of um, feeding back findings or thanking or um, making sure that you're giving back to your participants. But I think it's really important to have some sort of um, acknowledgement in that sense to have a, you know, ethical research. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so thank you so much, Gemma. This was absolutely fascinating. You know, I, I, I think we could have been like talking and talking and talking. I have so many questions. Oh, this is exciting. Thank you. Thank you. We're really happy to, to be here. Yeah, this has been great, Gemma. And I think it um, really feeds well into our season vision and ties into all the different episodes we've been putting out. So hopefully our listeners are seeing where we're going with this, looking more into stories and narratives. And um, we'll be back again next week and every Monday. We um, love all the engagement on Twitter. Please don't forget to share our episodes tweet about them we're at disasters decon we're also on instagram if you are on there and we will see you next week you've been listening to ksenia jason and me Gemma Sue on disasters deconstructed podcast